What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have on our show Mark Swagger, who's a PhD, works at the University of Rochester. Uh, originally, it was going to be uh, mainly about things like kratom and uh, psychedelic research, but when we first started talking, he's a researcher in something called psychopathy, which that during the first part of his career, he researched uh, psychopaths in the criminal justice system. So that was pretty interesting. The first part of this podcast is all about the criminal justice system um, and kind of some of the traits of, of what he's found out uh, occur in psychopathy or psychopaths. And then we kind of figured out um, there's a pretty strong connection between psychopathy and uh, first responders and uh, the kind of the emergency side of uh, that career. So pretty interesting stuff. I had a blast talking to him. Again, always, I learned a lot. So a lot of fun. Really appreciate him coming on the show and uh, hope you guys enjoy. Check it out. Dude, I get it, man. So we're officially recording. So Dr. Swagger, am I right? Yes. All right. Yes. Swagger is how you pronounce your last name. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Dr. Silverstein told me about you. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, that's how I found you. He's like, hey, you guys got to check out this this guy's research. Super interesting. Uh, apparently, he's into it. So I'm like, man, that'd be amazing. I had him on the podcast mm-hmm. on about a month or month and a half oh, ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of our connection. So yeah, man, he's thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm a psychologist um, and a, a associate professor at University of Rochester Medical Center um, in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, my career really um, started in the assessment and research on psychopathy. Um, so I, I've done a lot of work in criminal justice systems, uh, treating harmful substance use and such. Um, and most recently, I've become interested in the uh, potential benefits and risks of kratom um, and other uh, psychoactives that may be really useful in therapy, including psychedelics. Oh, wow. So real quick, what's what's psychopathy? Okay. uh, uh, Psychopathy. So you've heard the term psychopath or sociopath. Yeah. Um, Psychopathy is um, a personality construct that consists of, um, well, the important traits are really around uh having anxiety that is not sufficient so uh lack of anxiety lack of empathy uh lack of remorse um failure to to accept responsibility pathological lying and you can think of public figures now who are um you know or have recently been in high positions who who meet these criteria and it's a it's a bit frightening so i had um I had uh, my my first boss out of uh, out of uh, undergrad was a uh, was psychopathic, and uh, I had had experiences with that person that made me really question what what's going on with uh, people like that, and it led to a, a research career in psychopathy. Of course, the problem with researching psychopathy is there's not much you can do about it. When somebody oh is my really, gosh! Yeah, there's not a there's not a a robust treatment for it. So, wow. um, so uh, I've become much more interested in things that have clinical, practical clinical applications or public health uh, implications. So that's uh, that's super interesting, man. Because there's a 
I'm already super excited about this show. This is gonna be interesting. But uh, <laughs> as, as much as we as much as we can um, break down, I, I want to talk about your first career in psychopathy because that's like that's really interesting. And then let's let's break down some these these psychedelic drugs and some of the things you're into on that side. So first sure. off, what is uh, the definition officially of a psychopath? So the, the gold standard for assessing psychopathy is something called the psychopathy checklist revised um and it was created by robert hare uh at university of british columbia and um it's been used for uh decades now to validly assess people who might meet the condition and so you there are 20 traits on the psychopathy checklist um superficiality, maybe superficial charm, um, grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, need for stimulation, lack of empathy, remorse. Um, and these people tend to get into trouble quite frequently, um, especially if they are minorities um, with the law. And um, they also tend to work themselves into positions in society where they can take advantage of other people uh, often through fraud or um, uh, other abuses um, because they they talk a good game and they never follow up on anything um, and they tend not to um, they tend not to learn from their mistakes unfortunately and it seems to be a big problem and so uh, when you meet somebody with psychopathy or that you think may have psychopathy, what you're likely to see is, you know, I did my research in uh, criminal justice settings, uh, jails and programs mm -hmm. and such. And what you're likely to see on their rap sheet is just uh, senseless uh, crimes all, you know, all over the map. Maybe they're, maybe they're not, you know, you're a lot of people, most people uh, in jails, are uh, essentially decent people uh, who who are uh, you know trying to make it in a world that's pretty rough and and uh, are are going too far and hurting themselves and other people, but the people with psychopathy tend to be uh, valueless, and um, so any any uh, chance to gain um, they'll take, and so their their rap sheets don't look like the normal rap sheets where it's like you know three times this person's been charged with distributing uh, drugs. Uh, it's more like, yeah, they've got some drug charges, they've got a rape, they've got you know, 30 speeding tickets. It's just all over the place. Um, What's the predictor you, of a psychopath? Um, you, you, really have to, you really have to take a lot into account. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty pejorative label. And so to, to use it um, in a scientific way, even I've stepped away from calling people psychopaths, um, going more toward people with psychopathic traits and, uh, uh, and recognizing that, you know, we don't always know. We've got enough error in our measurements that we don't always know we're right. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to label somebody like that. But really good predictors you mean like childhood predictors or well yeah uh, just like genetic? is there is there a, a like you talk about checklists you know everything with research is in assessments and checklists it's yes um, how how can you predict this through an assessment or checklist right um, right you know, with with psychopaths 
is there a checklist of childhood trauma versus genetics or epigenetic factors? Is socioeconomic status a huge uh, contributor? All these things are different pieces. I'm just kind of curious what right. those pieces are. Um, it's messy, but I would say uh, the if you if you do work in jails, a lot of the people you've run into you run into will have childhood trauma and will have, you know, they will have witnessed violence or experienced abuse or neglect and have low socioeconomic status. And you can sort of see why they're in trouble. Um, with psychopathy, it's, it's a little more, uh, it, it seems to be earlier on and it seems to be maybe more of a um, genetic loading. Hmm. Um, I don't like to, really split things into biological versus psychological but for the, this purpose maybe it's helpful um people can be identified children at uh you know by the age of seven um who will who have a higher risk of being psychopathic when they're adults and um it's not it's not super a super powerful effect so it's not like you can just pick a kid and be like oh, a psychopath um <laughs> Nor should you, um, but uh, but there they are. Uh, there is some predictability, and and really, it, it is the empathy piece that is missing. That whole ability to feel and uh, um, and recognize others' pain, hmm. um, and really, um, people with psychopathy seem not to feel emotions in at quite the same depth as other people. And so having never felt things like sorrow or deep depression or um, great uh, sort of deep joy, um, people with psychopathy are less likely to be able to have empathy for others who do feel that because they've never felt it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of my, you know, one minute explanation of, what a psychopath. Uh, what psychopathy is. Is. Yeah. You can't <laughs> so, necessarily tell by their behavior because there are lots yeah. of people who are violent and, and uh, troubled um, who can be treated. Mm. And, um, and then people with psychopathy, there's some question as to whether they can be treated, but it's, there's certainly nothing that's, well, that's this, doing well. It's kind of a weird question, but um, man, I, I did a career in EMS and I've, I've worked with a lot of first responders as well. Uh, doctors, nurses, all over the place where, if you have empathy for too much of this, it actually destroys you. So a lot of first responders have to shut off their empathy empathy side um, uh -huh. to, pr to protect their self and their family. And I had to do that for a while um, where I, you know, be, to be able to talk with somebody and treat somebody on, yes. on, on the most worst possible situations, I had to not be empathetic because you're just doing your job, right? Yeah. Um, so if empathy is a huge predictor of psycho psychopathy, do you see a lot of psychopaths in EMS and first responder settings? And, well, that's another. That's I know. <laughs> so what I was what I would say about that is um, the the first part makes total sense, right? Business people do that too. They'll you know, hey, it's just business. I'm cutting you. Uh, I'm not going to worry about. It. I'm not going to have empathy for that person because um, it's part of the job, right? And so it's a tough thing to do, but people steal themselves and realize it's not particularly effective to be empathizing with somebody when they could be doing, you know, chest compressions or something. Um, that being said, people with psychopathy uh, do tend to go toward um, exciting jobs. What would be exciting jobs for them? And if you don't have empathy, what might be an exciting job is uh, EMS. Uh, 
I had I had one guy I talked to, uh, not clinically, just, uh, and he was he was uh, um, an EMS. Uh, what do you, what do you call EMS for? Uh, EMT paramedic. EMT. Yeah, that's thank yeah. you. Sorry. Um, and he said that he really enjoyed a part of his job where uh, he could deliver, uh, what is it, Narcan for yeah. <laughs> uh, people who had overdoses because they would come out fighting. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that's the sort of thing that you hear from people with psychopathic traits. Hmm. Um, well, then there's a lot of psycho psychopaths in EMS, man, because I mean. I, I do wonder. Yeah. Uh, jobs like that or, you know, police, obviously. Yep. Um Anything where there's a certain amount of either power or excitement, um, people with psychopathy, it overlaps with a lot of other disorders. So attention deficit disorder is one, and they become bored uh, easily. Mm. So people so, with psychopathy like the action. Do you think that the career creates psychopaths or the career attracts psychopaths? I think it's more it uh, attracts psychopaths okay. because people can't really – we're talking about a pretty fine sliver of the population mm. that has real psychopathy. What's that? What's um, that sliver percentage-wise? Uh, people have estimated between one and three okay. percent of the general population. Um, I think it's probably closer to one. Okay. Um, but that's because I'm separating people who who do like you did, who it's a strategy that you have to use and it makes you less sensitive for a purpose. But at the same time, you don't become less sensitive across all areas of your life. You become less sensitive in that strategic area and maybe a little bit. I mean, but I definitely did to be able to, cause I was a deeply emotional person. Like I just, uh -huh. I, I wanted, when I first got into the business, I wanted to uh, save everybody, you know, so green in the, in the field that I, you know, I wanted to save the world. That's, that's typically yeah. what people get into it for. And then you realize like you can't, and uh, it's really just a joke, honestly, to a lot of it because uh, death is death and there's very little you can do to fight death. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's pretty, it's a twisted mindset. I know, but man, I, I me and my partner, uh, we start, we, we, and then him and his buddy would try and get to the, the CPRs first to crack the chest first, like to, to pop. So when you first do CPR, it pops the ribs and yeah. it was a satisfying feeling for a lot of people. Because uh -huh. you, just, uh, you pop the ribs and all right, I'm done. And then you let your partner take over chest compressions. That's it's uh -huh. really sick. But those are psychopathic tendencies that I've realized. I'm like, man, that's really, that's really messed up. And a lot of my empathy. Know. You'll think you you're think ju you're judging that in a way that I don't think I would. Okay, we'll explain. Uh, you decreased your sensitivity in a way Big that time. felt necessary, and then you then you experienced a little bit of pleasure in doing that job. Um, but you weren't hurting anybody no by feeling less right you were you were strategic well i mean so my, my family like my wife um i unknowingly withdrew hardcore from her based on those experiences because i had to oh. retreat so much yeah so it sounds like it did affect your sensitivity in other areas too yep what you look for in psychopathy is you're doing you're doing a really long interview and you're looking for childhood through now um, a certain stability across time of the lack of emotionality in fact you can I'll give you an example um, there's a guy who uh, I was talking to and he was pretty high on the psychopathy checklist and he <laughs> had, uh, 
He was telling me about a robbery he committed at a convenience store. And he had people on the ground and he had a gun pointed at them, right? And I asked him, I said, well, what, what do you think those people were feeling? And there was a long pause and he was thinking about it. He couldn't imagine what they were feeling uh, particularly easily. And then he finally came up with excited because oh, he just wow. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, there's this real disconnect um, that is um, relatively stable over the lifespan. That's different from what you're, what you're talking about though. Um, you make a good point. If you do, decide to pull back emotionally in one area there's going to be some collateral mm -hmm. uh, um, you, you'll probably decrease your sensitivity to some extent in other areas yeah yeah it was for, for right. me it was pretty significant in other areas uh, i mean yeah. it, was, it was even hard to connect with my kids at, at, at times because of how was there trauma? disconnected what's that was, were you were you experiencing trauma on the job as a result of the the patients that you were Define trauma. Like, what's your definition of trauma on the job? Some pretty, you know, some pretty uh, awful scenes that, it, that oh, yeah. at first, when you start, um, those scenes really affect some people. Yeah, well, definitely. And so, like, uh, I was 18 when I first jumped in. Uh, I was an EMT when I was uh, right after high school. Jumped in, and I didn't see anything crazy during school. So that's that's when a lot of people kind of get to be broken in it's as a student. Yeah. But during my clinicals, I never got that. Um, I didn't do CPR until like my third day actually on the job orienting. And uh, it was my very first CPR was a traumatic full arrest where it was a autoped where a lady got smacked at like 70 miles an hour. And uh, I, I think the very first CPR I did while I was standing in like six inches of blood in the ambulance. And so um, that I couldn't watch a movie for or, or any war movies for like I don't know, six months. It was like, it was yeah. typical, like what you would expect. And then there's just a lot of those. I, that kind of broke me in. And then like one time I thought my, I thought my wife and my unborn child were on the table because uh, she looked exactly yeah. like my wife. So that, that, that type of trauma as well, really, really screwed with me. Um, definitely uh, dealt with it, but yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad you're talking about that. Cause that's, that's really the sort of thing that um, EMTs and other first responders deal with that is i mean um trauma like that is well known to uh sort of force people to pull back and and yeah. uh associate a little bit from the world that they're working in so it's not it sounds like it was more than a strategy it was actually a, a reaction to what you were dealing with well and, the strategy uh, came post reaction so makes once sense. i realized how depressed and how it got me i was like okay i can't I can't care for people and empathize right. with people anymore because it'll break me. So I don't. Right. And I think that's the consensus for most first responders, honestly. And yeah. why I wonder if, if psychopathy is a pretty inerrant trait inside of first responders that nobody talks about. So it, it that's, so it makes, makes for an interesting combination then you've, you've probably got some people who are attracted to the job because of the excitement yep. and don't actually have much potential to be traumatized by it because of their lack of emotional depth. And then you've got a much larger group of people who are attracted to the job for other reasons. And as a result of the trauma that they experience, um, will develop a callousness maybe, or a, uh, a wall that they, they recognize they need to put up, or it'll just happen in reaction to the trauma. Hmm. Uh, Man, that's interesting. Yeah. I'd, love, I'd love to see more research done on that. Huh. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's, uh, one, one area that the psychedelic, uh, psychotherapies are, um, pretty good for is trauma, especially MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Okay. And, I want to get it. I want to hear more about this, but before we jump into that, I want to okay. know what the difference between uh, a psychopath and a sociopath is. Oh God. <laughs> so, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, <laughs> That depends on the terminology. That's and that's a very common question. Um, a sociopath, to my knowledge, that term developed from theories that um, antisocial behavior, like violence and theft and fraud and all that, came from uh, society, a sociological um, sort of perspective. Came from the trauma. Came from the needs not being met, the neglect, the abuse. Um, and so sociopath would apply to a, a lot of the majority of people who are in trouble with the law. Psychopath came from a tradition where they were thinking about the mind and, you know, sort of genetic loadings and the interaction between the two. And, um, but regardless of all of that and the difference in terminology, um, I don't know what people are talking about when they're talking about sociopathy because I don't know what they're thinking. I studied I studied psychopathy in a pretty precise way, okay. um, and so I use that term. And that term is used, I think, for the for the majority of the really strong research. Okay, and it probably separates a smaller slice of of the antisocial sort of population. It, does it kind of come down to semantics when you're talking about that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So uh, and, yeah. And, and you could, and, and then they've got other words too. I don't know if you want to add like antisocial personality, disorder, whatever it's primary and secondary psychopathy. These are all ways of expressing one idea. The idea is that people who get into trouble frequently and persistently um, are not the same. And that the majority of them really do have uh, a life path that you can see led them there. And then there are, then there is a small number, smaller number, like 15 to 20% of jail populations, for instance, are people who it looks like they were, uh, they did not have empathy, remorse, deep emotion from a very early age and were going to get into trouble one way or another. So if empathy and remorse are the biggest predictors of, uh, psychopathic tendencies would teaching empathy and remorse reverse some of the psychopathic tendencies or can it not be taught? That's an open question. My, my, I, I can give my opinion based on it, uh, that it, that for somebody with psychopathy, it's very difficult to teach. Uh, I could give you an example. I worked with, uh, I worked in a, um, adolescent, uh, home for a while. And there was a 16-year-old there with psychopathic traits. And I mean, it was just off the charts. Um, frankly, a nice guy uh, uh, who uh, was nonviolent, but his mind was just constantly thinking of ways to defraud people. And he just couldn't ever, it never came through what, why that was not going to work for him. So I tried to focus on, 
the fact that he didn't, you know, most of us would get a little anxious or a little that we would feel something if we're, you know, planning crimes, I would hope, uh, besides excitement. Um, and, and I, 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 you know, therapists and I wasn't a very good one at this point, we use whatever we can. I had this, you know, metaphor. It was like, you know, other people have alarm bells go off when they're about to get themselves in trouble. Uh, you don't have those alarm bells. So what can we do to identify situations that might get you in trouble? And I got nowhere. Uh, you know, six, six months of pretty intensive therapy uh, did, did not help. Um, do, you, do you do like, is it EMDR? Your EMD, is that right? The rapid eye, RE? I do, I do a number of different therapies, but uh, exposure and response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder. I do some exposure therapies that are similar to EMDR. Okay. That's what I was wondering if EMDR ever had uh, a foothold in psychopathic tendencies like that or not. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting idea because EMDR, um, I don't think anybody really quite knows the process that mm. uh, it works through. And um, it wouldn't be automatically looked at for something like psychopathy because it's for trauma. But um well doesn't trauma isn't like when you have PTSD and, and traumatic responses like that, um your brain kind of hides that in your subconscious that you don't really even realize you have it sometimes. So EMDR it kind of uh, supposedly according to Dr. Shapiro, supposedly unlocks some of those things based on your eye movement. Am I right? So wouldn't eye movement unlocking trauma that your brain has hidden actually correlate greater to something like uh, psychopathic traits <laughs> you would think and and emdr or something like that um if you treat post-traumatic stress in people who are uh getting into trouble with the law you may very well improve their situation they they may get better they may find other ways to get their needs met and um, stay out of jail. <laughs> Psychopathy, the problem is that it's it's not clear that any real trauma has occurred because there's such a lack of sensitivity. <laughs> I'm not saying that people with psychopathy can't be traumatized, but I will say that in hundreds of interviews with uh, uh, people with psychopathic traits, I have not met one who can convincingly describe post-traumatic stress disorder or wow. depression. Depression. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's just not there. Yeah, yeah that's wow. So I, everybody, right, for some reason, there's a huge like interest in serial killers, right? Everybody and their mom wants to know about serial killers, and I'm sure you've yeah. dealt with some of these things uh, with psychopathy. So what lead, in your opinion, what leads to uh, the again, predictors of being a serial killer in psychopathic tendencies. So this is such a low base rate event, right? That yeah. it's really difficult to study. And I've not studied that in particular, but um, it seems like you, you get a couple of different um, problems with serial murder. Psychopathy is a big one. Um, many or most of the people involved in that seem to be um, psychopathic and that clears the way um, because um, sadism is another piece right if you really enjoy or get a sexual kick out of hurting other people or the power involved in taking a life um, and you don't have psychopathy you'll probably develop some sort of anxiety about that um, 
but if you happen to have if you happen to have sadism and psychopathy um where are the limits to what you're going to do to enjoy yourself that's interesting it's fortunate that it's fortunate that we don't have that combination that often the other thing that happens um occasionally you get a a person who's psychotic who is uh, a serial killer um and it's difficult to tell you know what what they believed about what they were doing um whether they were totally in control of it uh but i think that's the minority and th- and then occasionally you get both charles manson who was not technically a serial killer um <laughs> so now we're gonna get into tell I've been oh, into I know it's, uh, yeah i can tell <laughs> yes yeah this was part of the psychopathy uh part of my research um and people get upset about that uh so <laughs> uh, charles vanson uh it, it appears um was a person with psychopathy who developed schizophrenia and uh so my my supervisor used to call them schizopaths. Um, okay. People who are okay. psychotic and have no empathy. And, uh, okay. Yeah. So th- there are a few ways, but that's, that's the, and there is some evidence to support that stuff. It's just not a lot. And a lot of it's done in the criminal justice system. So like, I don't want to knock their research, but it's not necessarily high precision research. Okay. So you've you spent a good many years. How many years in this field before you jumped into psychedelic research? Um, so I got my PhD in 2006. So it was about 2001. I was doing, I'm still doing some psychopathy research now. Um, it's just a small part of my drug treatment okay. research. Um, but I started, I became very interested in psychedelic psychotherapies and uh, Kratom around uh, 2014 and 2016. Okay. So so you at the beginning you told me that there wasn't a whole lot of change you could do with psychopaths based on our current um, system. Why? It seems like well first of all they haven't developed a medication that gives people uh, deep emotions. Uh, we could we could speculate about psychedelics, but I, that's that's really be totally speculative. Mm. Um, and psychotherapy requires that an individual be um, in discomfort and um, feel like they are, in, you know, can do something about that discomfort. People with psychopathy tend to think they're great. Uh, they don't have a lot of. Um, anxiety or mood problems and they tend to blame others for their problems mm. and and these seem to be somewhat immovable in people with psychopathy and so if you have that if they do come in for therapy which isn't all that often um it's often just to 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 um satisfy some court mandate mm. uh, so you really saw no light at the end of the tunnel it was really just like a beating a dead horse like the horse ain't never going to be alive again <laughs> it's dead it's gone that is exactly the problem as i see it mm. um now there is a there's a real uh contingent of psychopathy researchers who uh do not see it that way mm. um but based on the data i've seen i don't 
Okay. I think it's an optimism mm. um, and, and a failure to measure things uh, in, in the way you would need to, to see this effect. Mm. Um, they don't, and a lot of people don't want to believe that there are people who are, who you can't help. Mm. Yeah. That's, ooh. <laughs> We won't get into that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, so, so tell me how that pushed you into psychedelic research. That didn't really, I don't oh, think okay. um, it pushed me into uh, substance use treatment research because I felt like uh, there were things that um, we could be looking at that would help people with substance use problems. Um, and that it was important to know who the people with psychopathy were. Uh, in order to separate them in your analyses from the other people um, so that you understood what was helping whom. Okay. And what we found was what we thought we would find, that people who score high on emotional traits of psychopathy um, did, not get, did not use um, less drugs. <laughs> uh, in fact, they used slightly more when they got the treatment. Interesting. Um, Whereas the treatment helped people who were non-psychopathic. So, wow, so, man, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So Kratom, so psychedelics, uh, Kratom, it's being used for, a, or trying to be used for a lot of mental health issues. Even yeah. recently, Oregon passed psilocybin uh, as a drug for mental health recently. It was, a, was it March of this year? I think, wasn't it? That Well, what did they pass? I think Oregon passed uh a LSD basically or shrooms dr drug treatment plan saying it's okay to use for mental health. Oh, oh yeah. Great. Did you hear about that at all? I, I heard that they, I thought they passed uh, uh psilocybin for recreational use. Oh, I thought it was for mental health too, but okay. Either way. No, no, you would probably know better than I do. Oh, I do. Dude, I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I read so much and I get them cross. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do know that point being that, uh, so, 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 I do that every psilocybin, time. Yeah. So psilocybin um, is being used more in the arena of mental health and actually uh, helping people. And it's not, it's kind of coming out from the underground. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that because before I was pretty against it. I was pretty against a lot of that stuff. You know, it's just for getting crazy and hallucinating, but the effects are amazing. So tell me about what you've learned. Yeah, the effects of psilocybin in particular and, and psychedelics in general are, um, well, it really depends on the individual. It's certainly not for, not for everybody. Um, and there are some risks. Of course. Uh, but SSRIs have massive risks, risks and that's yes. the main thing. Yeah. I mean, and I think the thing about psilocybin and other psychedelic therapies is it's not like you need to continue taking this over and over and over again. Some people mm -hmm. do, uh, but it's, um, it's a, you know, it's a one, two, three dose treatment with a lot of psychotherapy around it in uh, carefully set up conditions. Uh, you know, Leary's set and setting uh, are very important. You've got to have somebody in the right mindset, in the right setting around people they trust uh, with strategies for managing difficult experiences. And you can really um, do a lot of good work in one session. People come out of the, the session with um, a sense of awe and wonder quite frequently. They have what they're calling mystical or peak experiences where they um, feel that uh, all, all is one, that they're part of a much larger 
plan, uh, mm-hmm. plans, maybe not the right word, but universe. Um, and, um, people really learn to appreciate aspects of the world that they didn't, uh, before they went into it. Maybe they become more interested in nature or, um, spending time with animals or, um, yeah. or caring about other people. Uh, there are, you might increase empathy with psychedelics. So it's, I think the, the one thing that I say most to scientists about it is look at these effect sizes. You can tell the potency of a treatment to some extent through uh, effect size numbers. Um, just as, a, as an example, SSRIs and psychotherapy tend to have effect sizes around 0.2, 0.3 um, on, on this scale called Cohen's D. Um, of, of what is it like this is uh small small so this is um treatment versus a control condition okay and so the treatment um if the treatment does really well a strong effect size is 0.8 uh moderate is 0.5 0.2 is kind of weak but there's an effect okay um and so ssris and psychotherapies are somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3 if you average them out it's different for everybody um, these psychedelic studies are finding effect sizes over one, oh my uh, gosh. up to two, which is just unheard of in psychiatry for conditions like um, illness-related anxiety or depression. Um, so wow. it's a really exciting thing that's been um, held back for way too long mm-hmm. by legal objections and political wrangling and... Uh, and the fact that it's coming back gives us a chance to use these uh, these compounds correctly. That's a it's pretty hard because man, I I first started getting into research in the mental health field based on my experience on the first responder first responder side, um, where I just see like the actual state of our mental health system and and how really bad it is, how truly awful our mental health system is. So I started getting into like what the main treatment is, how SSRIs work, um, how they were pushed, how a lot of research was actually retracted in the '60s um, that that went against some of the effects of SSRIs and, like you're saying, point two effects. Uh, some of those effects, if I remember right, there was a study done by PubMed where the sample size was roughly 66,000 people, and they the one of the uh, control studies was just a placebo, right? It was just a water pill. And a lot of the same people found the same effects with the water pill than they did with the SSRIs. So I'm not saying, I'm not definitely dogging on completely on SSRIs because there is a time for SSRIs. I want to get that clear as well. Um, But it is the main push and has been attractive by big, by a lot of pharmaceutical companies. And so my concern is like, why? Like we know something that will fix it in a really good way. And it has been around since before, SSRIs were created in the 60s, then why, in your opinion, do you think that it's really not being pushed? Is it a money grab? Is it a power grab? What do you think? Um, well, the the DEA, uh, which is a problem. Schedule one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the DEA, yeah, it's on schedule one. Um, it's been, and, and this, uh, I'm, I'm having conversations today that remind me of this, uh, that this idea of good drugs and bad drugs is still out there. It's not like, what are we treating 
in what kind of person who has what risks and um sorry i got a moose on camera uh, what risks, right? And so it's a really complicated situation. And these, um, when they were demonized in the 60s, it wasn't just Nixon. It wasn't just um, uh, society looking at, at hippies and saying, we don't want this. It was, um, it was an all-out war that was launched. Mm. And a lot of doctors um, felt that they got confirmation that that war was correct because what would happen is, um, you know, people take a bunch of acid, uh, flip out, get super anxious, come in while they're on acid to the emergency room. Um, the doctors would see them psychotic, uh, and then they'd be anxious and psychotic for, you know, maybe days, um, before they got better. And so really what the doctors were seeing was pretty, pretty dark. Um, and what it was in most cases, at least was people not knowing how to manage the effects of the drugs, not doing it in the right situations, doing way too much, um, basically irresponsible drug use yeah. and, um, and then getting super anxious about it. So there are the, I, I underestimated when I started to begin to actively push for psychedelic research i under, underestimated the headwinds that we'd be going into interesting um, yeah wow. and that and that is to this day at the nih institutes who are not particularly keen on funding uh psychedelics and it's just wow. um wow it's, it's a lot it's I, a lot of man so research is, is how you change things research is how you really get things done you know again going back to what I, my previous career my previous history i thought what we had currently was how you help people and how you change people but like i said before if, if death comes knocking there's nothing you can do to stop death coming to knock so i realized how mm -hmm. lack of control we do have and how some of our policies like in the mental health field i just really screwed up so yeah. i jumped into research man and, and what you're saying is is aligning with what i've learned where whoever has the money is what is pushing the research unfortunately and, unfortunately that is often true and you know whenever you have the coincidences and i'm not saying we're going to jump into conspiracy theories but from, from my opinion when you hear of a coincidence that just means you need to pay attention more and yes. so for me a coincidence in the 60s with a massive CIA program like MK Ultra and yeah there was a conspiracy oh, i know i know i know <laughs> Okay, it was so, a legit, like the worst kind. Yeah. You know? And so you brought up Charles Manson earlier. He was involved in all that. And mm -hmm. that was his exact same time that there was a war against LSD and psychedelics where the CIA was pushing LSD in their own ways to see how you can mind control people. Um, yes. And Charles Manson was all in it. So coincidence wise, you look at how the government and Big Pharma was pushing SSRIs and demonizing lsd while they were still using lsd seeing the really good effects of lsd and yes so we still see that a lot of times today where more drugs and more mental health uh medicines are coming out but we have a really good drug here seemingly yeah, yeah. kratom and lsd in yeah. uh different types of of marijuana use so my, like why why how do we how do we get past this I think people are still seeing, well, I guess educating people about the science of it and maybe also, I don't want to get moralistic or anything, but maybe also about just not 
telling people what to do. Mm-hmm. They're going to do what they want to do. I think this part of your part of your point was you can you can make a policy, but people are just going to do what they're going to do, and you have mm-hmm. to accept it. Um, we can't stomp it out with legal. I mean, we've done so much damage uh, with the drug war, but we can educate people. And so, I mean, I guess it begins with some of these um, health professionals who still think that acid makes you um, psychotic or uh, it does for a time. uh, (laughs) That's with everything. You can get psychotic. You can commit suicide on antidepressant drugs. Which yes, happens all the time. So again, it's a double standard that doesn't make sense. And and you do you are point you did point out earlier the money, right? Uh, I'm sure people stand to make money from psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, but it's not it's not maybe the same sort of thing that you can make on a pill that mm. people take every day. And hey, um, hey, by the way, if we get knocked off in the next couple of days, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've had these thoughts. I. Uh, <laughs> paranoia but you know it was my paranoia was higher during the the kratom thing uh because what do you mean well that's an interesting situation right uh yeah um so the fun part of it for me as a researcher like you can do some good scientific research and nobody pays any attention right in fact that's most of it Mm -hmm. Uh, but but uh i did a paper on Kratom in uh, 2015 with Zach Walsh and the Arrowids from Arrowid.org. I'm not sure. Um, uh, because I had just sort of stumbled on to Kratom on their site and realized that people are using it to good effect. And I was reading these experience reports that people send in after taking Kratom. And I, I was like, there's not much research out here, but this is now uh, a thing in the United States. It's been used for at least a century, probably well over a long time. Yeah. In Southeastern Asia, but it now, uh, thanks to the internet and easy access, um, a lot of people are taking it. Why don't we do a little bit of research on what it's doing? Um, and it was right around that same time that the DEA announced their intent to schedule it on schedule. Yep. Um, I remember that because one of my buddy was doing the exact same thing. He's like, man, this is really interesting. It's having a lot yeah. of good effects. And then like literally a few days later, I see that they're trying to make it a schedule one drug. I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. Uh, and so you can, you know, ultimately I've come to the conclusion that people wanted to make money off of this mm-hmm. um, and making it a schedule one drug and then creating a pharmaceutical was probably what's going on. But also you've got the wheels in motion all the time for stomping out the newest drug scare and, mm-hmm. you know, controlling people with those, those ideas. Wow. So it became a, it became the latest thing in the drug war. And I was like, well, I've got some data here on it. And I finally um, was able to get some of that data out to the public through the media rather than journals, you know, scientific journals. And it became, it just sort of blew up in in that um, the FDA all of a sudden started demonizing it with really bad studies. Wait, your research? uh, No, they, they started demonizing Kratom with these awful studies. Like there's no, 
the FDA's got good scientists. I mean, they they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There's no explanation for what they were doing that's positive. Um, talking so, about kratom related deaths and uh, uh, overdoses and such. And so kratom, like the, the bad research was bad because uh, of what? The bad research. They would take uh, um, case studies. Um, which give you a very low level of evidence. You don't know what yeah. caused it. So there's types of – break down the types of studies because this is a big deal sure. that people don't realize. There's case studies. There's yes. respective yes. studies. There's case sample size studies. You need to look at all these types of studies to actually understand what is a good study. So just because one side has a study that's a case study with you know five people or something in the I'm sample so size. Glad you, I'm so glad you asked this because this is – this still drives me nuts. Okay. Explain. <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so there are case studies. In a case study, you can't tell what caused what. You just have an interesting outcome, and you can kind of pull together a story, right? Um, so if I wanted to show that um, uh, gummy bears cause cancer, I could write a case study. I have a cancer patient. He consumed gummy bears. You know. He's dead. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course they don't, we hope. Yeah. But uh but you know, and and most research is conducted in good faith, so it's not a problem that there are these case studies, everybody understands. Yes. Yes. Um, but the, the FDA was taking case studies, toxicology studies, which are basically um or, or um sorry, um poison control center studies, which are basically people calling in saying, I've taken this and here's what I'm feeling. So it's based on subjective material. Yes, yes. Uh, So they'll call in, and basically there you've got extreme event overrepresentation again. People are not going to call a poison center if they feel good. Um, Mm -hmm. Not going to call a poison center if they feel nothing. They're going to call if they feel something they're scared about. Mm -hmm. So that's a problematic type of study for overestimating risk as our case studies. Then they started pulling together. This was the most absurd thing. They started pulling together uh, coroners and medical examiners reports. Uh, And what they did was they took people who had taken Kratom before their deaths and attributed their deaths to Kratom. Now, these these cases included uh, a guy who was shot, many people who had... um, other drug, heroin in their system at the time. Um, and so then, so, okay, that's a really low level of evidence too. Then you add the fact that Kratom does not cause significant respiratory depression, if any, which is the overdose problem with opioids, right? Mm-hmm. They cause respiratory suppression. They kill people that way. Well, so that's, that's um, actually super key. I'm glad you touched on that because there's an over, there's an overdose medication that, uh, well, special K, right. Uh, ketamine, ketamine yeah. is a huge thing, but it doesn't, uh, decrease your respiratory drive. That's why a lot of, of people use ketamine to intubate because you can still knock them out, reduce their gag reflex without actually. I did not know that. Yeah. That's so it. that's yeah. a bit, that's a big deal. So respiratory drive, like different drugs will affect different types of your system. So Knowing that kratom doesn't affect your respiratory drive is actually key. That's that's actually very huge. That's the that's the mechanism by which you would think it would cause death, uh, because we haven't identified other ones. Yeah. They just don't. We don't have any clinical trials. So with all of that bad research, they also. De- I mean, it was so clear what they were doing. 
because they also developed a model that's used in preclinical studies that they, I, I don't, they used it. I'll just basically say they used it uh, inappropriately to say kratom's an opioid, so that they could start saying this opioid is killing a lot of people. And then, you know, I've got my studies. They're observational studies. They're not clinical trials. They, I think they were well done. Um, we did a review. Tell me, we did a, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. We, we did a review in 2018. We did a review of all the research we could find that was well done on Kratom. So a meta-analysis. Um, it was a systematic review. Okay. And it, um, <laughs> sorry. No, you did that, that dog is cute. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Moose? You're a star. <laughs> um, you know, um, and we looked at it. I forget. I think there were 13 that met our criteria okay. for uh, scientific rigor. And what we found was that people were using Kratom um, to get off of opioids, classical opioids, uh, like, uh, you know, heroin, Vicodin, oxycodone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were using it for mood and anxiety purposes. And um, that there is a significant um, withdrawal syndrome associated with it. So you can, there is such a thing as creative dependence. Okay. So this was uh, this this was with all the research that was available in 2018, and um, so what the FDA was saying, this will kill you. It's killed 41 people or whatever in the last however long uh, in the United States. Not only runs counter to the fact that there's never been a death due to kratom reported in Southeastern Asia mm. over a century or more, but it also runs counter to any ideas of what the mechanism would be and any of the observational research. That's weird too. Cause we're seeing that, that same pattern. Um, it was a huge deal just a few months ago with, with COVID deaths where a lot of people are, are mixing COVID deaths with traffic deaths and saying it's a COVID death, um, oh. creating inflated numbers. And that was a huge deal. Again, uh, that's also people say it might, could be conspiracy that we're reading the data yes. wrong, but I mean, even if that happened a few times, that's still a big deal. And yeah, and it can be a mistake, but it, it, you know, after you see it happen over and over and over again, like it did with Kratom. Yep. Uh, so, so my life, one of my life philosophies with uh, making decisions is if, if something happens one time, don't worry about it. If second hap- some, if something happens twice, that's a coincidence. Pay attention. If something mm-hmm. happens three times, it's purposeful. And so yeah. that's where I'm like, okay, we, we now have COVID inflated deaths with other traffic and other murder deaths. Again, I'm not, I'm not taking a stance on COVID on any of that. However, saying, hearing what you're saying about Kratom and how they're mixing in that same thing. That's interesting. And there's also a, there's also a problem with, uh, you know, um, coroners and medical examiners are not well-funded. They, Mm. they, there's a problem with our whole system there. So I know that. You, you don't you don't know how much of what they're giving you is um, what sort of process it's been run through before wow. that's issued. Wow. So there there's so many problems with it, but it's all gone one way with Kratom. So you can tell it's a strategy. Mm. Bro, you're gonna get knocked off. Careful. <laughs> I did get a I did get a email from a lawyer once, but I I don't uh, I don't think I have that much influence. So that saves me. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, uh, it, it only takes. 
takes a little bit of time and the very big reason why I'm doing this podcast, I say this with a lot of people, is is getting this information out there. Information that people don't really necessarily understand on the research side of things, how mm-hmm. how um, a lot of times media pick picks like what studies they like. They, they pick those case studies or yes. um, sample size studies of five people versus the competing sample size of one million. So yeah, you're, yeah. You're going to get completely different results and one's going to be way better and it's going to be with the larger sample size. We had, and we had 13 studies with, I can't remember how many people, but, um, you know, uh, Kratom Harms would be on CNN and I can't talk to a reporter in town, you know? So oh it's like, uh, you know, it's just every day it was for a while, but the happy part of it right now is that there's a group of scientists who are really dedicated to this and have really been doing a lot of political work behind the scenes and then the Kratom community um, is there. You can say one thing about them. They're vocal. A lot of them, a lot of them understand the science. Some of them don't. Uh, a lot of them um, are really um, dedicated to, you know, writing their, uh, their politicians. And they sort of made the uh, DEA thing go away for a while so i noticed that because I, I, I recently is probably shoot probably four or five months ago i started researching again if it was a schedule one it's not a schedule one at this point no. correct? and they that's didn't a big schedule. deal some states have uh banned it other states have passed uh kratom consumer protection acts to okay. keep it legal stuff so, but federally it's not scheduled all right yeah. so now tell me a little bit about like the how it works how the mechanisms work with kratom Oh, now see, now you've gotten into something I can barely uh, discuss. Uh, you'd have to talk to know. my pharmacological colleagues. There's, okay. there's a uh, my my very basic understanding of it is that it is it does act on opioid receptors, okay. um, but it's a partial opioid agonist. So whereas something like uh, oxycodone or heroin is going to hit the opioid receptors pretty hard. And then, you know, people get high and people um, uh, get extreme pain relief and Mm -hmm. they get extreme, uh, you know, if they stop taking it and have abused it, they they get extreme withdrawal symptoms and it really puts them in a tough situation. Well, so does caffeine. Some caffeine binds the same exact thing. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Like Kratom seems more along the lines of caffeine to me than it does heroin. But, uh, but, uh, so because it's a partial opioid agonist, it's only doing, mm-hmm. it's doing like half of that, right? Okay. If so, that, yeah. So the effect, I don't know about the effect on pain. It may be significant. It may be very strong. Um, and, uh, the consumers who report in these surveys indicate that it helps a lot. Um, it doesn't get you high like heroin. Um, Mm -hmm. Some consumers report euphoria that's uh, brief and, um, uh, you know, some some sort of intoxication. But by and large, no, Um, more like caffeine. Yeah. And and the withdrawal and tolerance is much less than the the classical opioids. So it's not like there's no harm potential. People do get uh, hooked on it from time to time. Uh, Some people it. It does disrupt their lives, but overall at the public health level, it seems to be doing a lot more good than harm and probably saving lives. But again, like everybody uses those type of 
arguments against a certain drug or something like that. And all you have to point to is the caffeine industry. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I've tried to stop coffee like cold turkey. It doesn't work. Yeah. I, I, I could not start my IVs at work because <laughs> I couldn't see. I had yeah. terrible migraines. And then when you trace it back to actually who's making these coffee and like pulling up these coffee beans, it, that gets uh, into some really sketchy third world country type of slavery stuff. Yet here we are in America as one of the most caffeine high producers in the world. And we spend- Are you in Oregon? What's that? Are you in Oregon? No, nah, man, I'm in Texas. <laughs> oh, you're in Texas. Okay. Yeah. I thought you might be in the Northwest where the caffeine high no. is just the constant. No, nah, bro. It's just the EMS thing. We, we live on coffee. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. It's, it's essential. I, yeah. Michael Pollan's got a new book out about caffeine. It's pretty good. He just wrote, he wrote a, there's a book that I would highly recommend about psychedelics written by Michael Pollan. It's called how to change your mind. Okay. Um, what the best book on the subject for, uh, for, for it's pretty scientifically, um, uh, sourced, but it's also, um, a, an easy read, but he, he followed that book with the book on caffeine and it, it's, <laughs> it's making the point that you're making. So do you, do you know much about um, going back to like psychedelics and LSD, Kratom? Uh, is Kratom technically a psychedelic? No, uh, it's not. Although some people do note that there are um, some visual changes. Um, some, you know, music sounds better. It's a little bit like cannabis in that way. Okay. Um, so it's got it's got some consciousness expansion properties, but those are really sort of minimal and and reported by a minority of users. Yeah, it seems like a, a big factor predictor, like going back to predictors um, of mental health issues like PTSD, depression, anxiety, are really heavily correlated with neuroplasticity and how well your train your your thought trains are rigid. You know, and when right. I was talking to when I was talking to Dr. Silverstein, he kind of gave me the example or we were talking about this example of like our, our life, every instance in our life creates new neural pathways. I think about it like a, a web or a creek. So we have these yeah. creek, we have these high walls, the water's flowing that one way. It's been flowing that way for a while. Um, you know, one new experience created a new branch and that's what's led to where we are today. Um, the age of 26, 26, 27 is when it, you're neuroplasticity starts to decrease and yes. you're able to, or you're less able to, have new experience, not saying you don't have new experiences, but, um, it, it doesn't happen as much. And you're kind of set in your ways again, not saying that you can't learn and have new things, but the open mindedness yeah. typically decreases. Yes. So, um, does that sound right so far? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now the Creek, we're talking about the Creek, the waves. Um, whenever we do things like LSD, uh, DMT, marijuana to a degree, it helps that Creek overflow a little bit and learn new things create more open-mindedness, which helps you uh, fight depression and anxiety because a lot of times the root and triggers of depression, anxiety, PTSD are in deeply rooted canals inside of your brain. Yeah. And breaking I those I love canals- this metaphor, by the way. This is- Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. No, this fits. This okay. fits. Neuroplasticity is a big part of why people are excited about psychedelics. Yeah. And uh, why so. we need, I think, more of this and- you know, open-mindedness is not talked about a lot. And a lot of, a lot of people have frowned upon that in different circles, even from religious circles to, uh, shoot, whatever ideology, ideological thing you want to jump into. Yeah. Um, the open-mindedness is not taught, um, in most 
some some religions actually have a very really cool open minded open minded setting. But uh, how do we push more of teaching open mindedness to be able to fight off anxiety, depression, and really start fixing this mental health epidemic as a public from a public health perspective? Wow. I know, man. I'm sorry. I know. As you can tell, this so this is my passion, if you haven't noticed yet. I've noticed. <laughs> I really appreciate these questions. Um, you know, it start it 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 come it happens at all levels. Closed-mindedness, you know, as you can see, in our political situation is one where people are being pitted against each other for um, political gain and monetary gain. Um, Closed-mindedness is a part of that. Um, and so we've got to begin to recognize the humanity in other people, I think, and empathize. Psychedelics have a role to play in that because they do increase openness, which is um, not something that's found in the psychiatric literature. Mm. Um, you, after a psilocybin session done at Johns Hopkins, um, uh, one study found that participants increased openness to experience. Now, this is a, as you explained, this is a stable trait in people who are, you know, in their 20, mid 20s. Uh, and, and it increased um, to the extent that you wouldn't normally see in decades after a single session. So open openness to experience, viewing things from a new vantage point, um, sort of getting a reset and uh, having some of the other things that were foremost in your mind that were, you know, stopping you from moving ahead, move to the side and being able to see it from another angle. These are all ways that I that I would describe psychedelics as working, mm -hmm. and uh, they do when they work, and they don't work for everybody. Um, when they work, they they can really improve that open mindedness and that problem solving ability. At least that's what the research looks like now, and I I think it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. um, man, that's uh, man, I just I'm I'm so sick of corruption and uh injustice yeah. i mean that's that's yeah. the world we're living right now but um it just seems so beneficial i've never done it don't get me wrong i've never done it um but the and so far i'm, I'm very evidence-based i want to see the results and yeah. and see before anything really happens and it's cool to see some of the federal side of this actually being pushed uh on the legal side so uh, a lot of bills i, I don't want to say a lot but i know that the federal side of it is trying to push for using this on a mental health side of it. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious to see how that, co how that comes about. Huh. I think, uh, you know, at this point, it's mostly, um, aside from ketamine, which can be used, it's a schedule three drug. So mm -hmm. it can be used off label. You can do that kind of work. Um, the other psychedelics are still schedule one and uh, have mostly been used in trials. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a slow rollout. Of course uh, it's a slow rollout because it's a freaking schedule one drug. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know if you know who, uh, Roland Griffiths uh, at Johns Hopkins, he's done some of the uh, preeminent work on psilocybin recently. Um, he said we're probably a good good few years out still from clinical use. Okay, okay. Ketamine is a, is a reasonable uh, at high doses in the right setting with preparation and support and uh, post-dosing integration. It's a reasonable, atypical psychedelic uh, that can be used clinically now. 
And we're seeing results, like you're saying, last for weeks, if not months at a time. Am I right with one or two sessions? Of ketamine? or of, of, In general. Uh, they can last longer than that even. Um, wow. They, when they did this open, when they did this study of openness to experience, they measured, I think it was 14 weeks after the, uh, or 14 months after the uh, one dose and uh, openness was still uh, at, at high levels. What about like so, things like mental health? Um, you mean like depression and yeah. So like say you have somebody who's acutely depressed, uh, they do one session with whether it be ketamine or LSD. What are we seeing as results wise? So they're not, I'm not aware of the LSD research right now. There's a little bit going on. Um, psilocybin, I'm not aware of any sort of longer term studies. There was a recent one that came out that had excellent results, but the follow-up was not particularly long. Okay. Um, so that's another thing to be figured out. One thing with ketamine is um, it's got a little more danger to it because uh, mm. you can develop a ketamine use disorder where the, the classical psychedelics are not addictive in a, you know, sort of the traditional withdrawal and dependence way. Um, but ketamine can be. And so they're using it at really low levels for depression. That's not psychedelic therapy. Um, and the problem with that is that relapse is high. So they go in, they get high uh, once or twice a week. Um, after a few weeks, they're depressed again. They got to do it some more. And you can see how that might create a substance use disorder over time. So I'm, I'm proposing to do the high dose ketamine treatments that are psychedelic in nature. They look very much like psilocybin assisted therapy. Um, and, you know, one or two treatments. Um, and the possibility is that there would be less relapse and more personality change. So um, with the therapeutic effects of these type of drugs, are we seeing the therapeutic effects in a good way because of it increasing open-mindedness or is it directly affecting like the, the neuropathophysiology of the brain in depression? Good question. Uh, I don't, I think that it's still, there's still a good question. Uh, I mean, a real question about how these drugs work. Okay. We know that they, during psilocybin, for instance, during the period where um, somebody's intoxicated, um, there's something called the default mode network. And when we're worrying or ruminating or, you know, angry, thinking about our, our history or the future, um, we're using a set of brain structures that communicate with each other in kind of a line, right? Well, what psilocybin does is it, it takes that path of communication and just now you're, you're, um, brain structures are communicating across the board, right? Mm. You're taking in more information. The, the creek um, is becoming a river and flooding over. The creek is becoming a river. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm happy to send you a, a few supporting materials. Oh, if, please. Uh, if those are interested. Just, just email me afterwards. And I'll, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, because I think that maybe a visual representation of this is more useful. But um, basically it's not like these numbing agents that we have, right? Most of these drugs are numbing agents of some sort. This is access to information. Uh, and it is a time when the brain 
is working um, in ways that it doesn't normally when we're just thinking about normal things. Um, so it seems like there's something to that mystical experience that is important in changing, in, in creating the outcomes, reducing the depression, increasing the openness. And that if people don't have that mystical experience, they're less likely to have those good outcomes. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So it's not, it's not the sort of thing where you need to keep doing it, keep hitting the serotonin receptors and, well, I'm glad you said the serotonin receptors because, you know, big thing I, I, I was been researching lately is, is that, you know, the gut biome is becoming more and more of a huge facet in the human body and how oh. it affects mental health. Um, the big notion for SSRIs, selective serotonin reputic inhibitors, they attack serotonin and they think it's in the brain, supposedly. Um, however, serotonin, 90% of it's made in the gut where you have a lot of the neurons actually in the gut yeah. that connect with your brain. So that just seems like a farce to me, honestly. I mean, <laughs> so what do you know about Kratom, psilocybin, so, 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 yeah, so LSD, all that, and how it affects your gut biome? I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that uh, Kratom, uh, almost certainly has some serotonergic activity and that the classical psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin um, increase serotonergic activity uh, for a period of time. But I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know much about the gut biome. I do know that it uh, makes a lot of sense to me um, just from a, just to abstract it a little Um Psychosomatic disorders often involve the gut. Um, mm. and okay, so I know I know psychosomatic is like a, it's all in your head type of thing. Yes, yes. So, continue uh, with that. so and so, um, and if you're upset, right? Like you know, the gut, uh, even just stress, mm -hmm. is highly susceptible to that stuff. Oh, dude, um, don't, don't get me talking about chronic stress, man. God, I bet it's something. I, it, the research behind chronic stress and how it affects your body is insane it should be classified as a, a full-on disease not just yeah. as a risk factor it should be oh, like I chronic stress should be a disease <laughs> yeah some some jobs when you sign up for them should just be uh you know there should be a big warning label on them for oh my gosh man, it's insane but that's about all i know about the gut yeah. biome you know it, it, the the things that psychedelics i think the things that psychedelics do that um are most exciting to me is they really do show you that it's about the big picture mm -hmm. that this reductionistic model of figuring out what's going on with um serotonergic activity and the you know whatever um is not the story um the story is about the whole body and is about the mind and in fact the mind may well exist um independent of the brain and now I'm getting way out there. No, but there I, want, are, I want to know about that. Why, why do you say that? I have about 10 minutes. So, Hey man, how about this? Cause I want to, I want to conclude. So if you have 10 minutes yeah. and let's just go ahead and conclude, conclude now. And then next time I want to have you on, we'll talk a little bit more about that other stuff. Does that work for you? Happy to do it. I'm happy okay. to do it. So in, the, in your last five minutes, uh, we're concluding, uh, you're say you're, the main advisor to the president and the president says, Hey, I want to fix three things. What's your opinion on what would you fix? 
get a new main advisor. Uh, I got two left, right? I got two left. Yeah. <laughs> Three things. Oh, good. You know, like, this is this is uh this is one that wealth inequality. Um There's so much, man. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> so specifically, you know, your passions, you're seeing the most change. You want to see the most drug difference. War. The drug war. Okay. Got it. They've got to legalize everything. Okay. Legalize it all. I mean, if you wanna, if you wanna stop some things at the border, there are ways to do that. Um, they're not ever going to stop the supply of most of these drugs. They can occasionally eradicate one. Uh, I, I can't think of an example, but you know, it, kratom's an interesting example. They might be able to shut it down to some degree based on who's using it but and the drug war uh put that money into education on mm -hmm. substance use and treatment and saving people's lives and social programs and um uh and tax the fucking rich but <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's the whole country's the whole country is like, I mean, how are we? It's so obvious that we've been snowed since Reagan. Um, uh, oh, I know yeah. that's, that's a whole other rabbit trail. I want to get down one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's yeah. So I think that was three. I don't that know. Was, that's fine. But there's so much. <laughs> no, I do. I know, man. And that's why. What would, I, you, what would you change? Oh, me? Golly, dude. Yeah. You know, so I'm a, the biggest change I want to see is uh, is education. I want to see change in how we learn. You know, yeah. we're, we're learned, we're, we've been taught to live in a box and I'm so sick of that box and that box has actually created more issues. So if we yeah. could actually foster learning in our children, um, foster learning and actually, uh, make sure they're healthy, you know, yeah. put, make, let them learn outdoors, uh, stop putting walls up. Um, yeah. there's a lot of interesting research on how the outdoors actually affect every aspect of a children's livelihood. And oh, no doubt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know. There's a book I, I tout every to anybody who will listen is called The Last Child in the Woods, and it talks about nature deficit disorder and how it's increased yeah, type two type two diabetes, uh, mental health issues across the board, uh, metabolic syndrome, all these things, uh, and it's just been ridiculous. So education that's that's probably my main yeah. one is yeah. teaching our kids that covers a lot of ground. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we want to change the world, change generations, we and unfortunately the other side does this in a bad way too. If they want to change the generations and change the world, they do it on the negative side for the kids. Yes. But I just want to I want to foster learning, man. If people wanted to learn, everything would be different. But they Well, don't. see this, these are the ideas that got Timothy Leary shut down in the 60s. I know. You know I know. Also a fair amount of mischief, but <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, everything we're talking about is encompassed in that one idea. Yes. Learning. Let's learning. not restrict learning. Let's actually teach to the child and not teach for a system. And that's it up, kills me. Open up, teach people how to learn um, and eliminate the propaganda. Ooh, preach, man. Well, man, I, I want to get you out of here. Uh, I want to have you on again. Right. It was uh, truly a blast. You are so smart. and I'm, I learned a lot. I appreciate you, man. That's really kind. I appreciate your questions. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye.